Hi there, Duke fans. Welcome to episode 217 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. I'm your host this week. My name, as always, is Jason Evans coming to you from the ATL. And I am joined, as always, by my two partners in crime, Sam Klein. Sam, how's it going? Doing okay. We, I feel like we just spoke because during pandemic times, <laughs> we normally don't do shows three days apart. But here we are with actual news to discuss. Oh, yeah. Major news. Very significant news. And we have a guest on in just a moment to help us dice through our way through the news. But first, my other co-host, Donald Wine. Donald, what's up, buddy? Uh, I'm good, guys. I, I was supposed to watch some soccer this morning, but because of said pandemic, I was not able to. The game was postponed three minutes before I was supposed to start watching the game. So I'm a little bummed about that, but I am ecstatic about this news that we have coming out of women's basketball for our team. Uh, and I'm glad we're getting ready to talk about it. Yeah, so let's let's dive right in because we have some major news. Uh, Duke has a new women's head basketball coach. It is Kara Lawson, the former ESPN commentator. She was a star in the WNBA, played for Tennessee, and was a you know a, a very impressive college basketball player. And most recently was an assistant coach for the Boston Celtics. That's right. She was a coach in the men's game over the past couple of years. We've seen more and more women getting into men's basketball coaching. And Kara Lawson was one of the rising stars in that regard. But rather than staying in men's college, uh, sorry, rather staying in men's pro ball, she has come to Duke. Um, There's a lot of excitement about this. And we are frankly not qualified to be the ones to talk about it completely. So we have brought on a special guest. We are joined by Rob Klo. Rob is... Uh, Actually, Klow. Klow? That's my bad. I'm gonna... It can be pronounced about 12 different ways. So don't worry about it. <laughs> Could also, could also have been Rob Clough. <laughs> could have, depending depending on where I, my family was from, because in England it is Clough. There you go. Well, Rob, <laughs> uh, he's been writing about college basketball for about 25 years. He was the lead writer for DWHoops.com, which was the Duke women's basketball website. Um, and he's written for FullCourt.com, the ACC Basketball Handbook. He knows more about women's college basketball. He has forgotten more about women's college basketball than I know. That is for sure. So, Rob, thanks for joining us. Let's start off with this, man. Just give me your impression of the hire of Kara Lawson. Are you excited? Do you think this was a good place for Duke to go? They, I, I think that even White, uh, the other name that we cannot forget with regard to this is Nina King. Not the kind of hire that they wanted. They wanted a splash hire wanted a familiar name um i think in kevin white's case he's thinking legacy and i think in nina king's case um because everywhere i hear says that nina king is going to take over for kevin white at some point that's the scuttle for her she wants a big hire going into her administration it is definitely an exciting it's definitely an exciting hire that's going to um, bring in some, some fans, bring in some attention. It's not one that is without risk, however. Tell, tell me, what, what's that risk? What do, what do you think are the – I've mostly seen excitement. You know, sure. if, you, if you feel like there's some risk, please tell me why. I, I want to get that it's analysis. Considerable. Lawson has exactly one year of coaching in her career. She has never coached at the collegiate level. In any regard, she has no familiarity with how to recruit administrative uh, aspects of the job, NCAA rule book, as far as I know. I'm not saying that she 
can't do all of those things and won't be able to do all of those things successfully, but it's a massive learning curve. And this is actually not a terrible time bringing this kind of candidate given where the program was. Rob, are there specific assistants or specific types of assistant coaches that you think Kara Lawson needs to immediately attract to overcome some of those shortcomings on her resume that you brought up? Sure. I mean, it doesn't take a genius to say that when you're a young coach, one of the people on your bench should be uh, an older, experienced coach, possibly a former head coach at some level, someone that she trusts. And Coach K did pretty much the same thing when he, when he arrived at Duke, when he had uh, Colonel Tom Rogers as one of his first assistants. Okay, and then Kay moved from that to Godet. Because Kay always had the sense, I need an older coach on my bench. I need an older coach on my bench. That didn't change until the mid-90s when he said, oh, wait, I'm the older coach now. And he started to recruit younger assistants. So that there's a there's a self-awareness of not just tactics. Um, I have I have no doubt as to her basketball acumen. She's extremely intelligent. And she's been a basketball analyst on TV for years. You know, she's been closely attached to the game. There's a history of a transition from basketball analyst to coaching in a variety of sports. That's fine. Obviously, the most crucial piece for Carol Lawson is uh, capable recruiters. That means people who have experienced recruiting at a national level, but also at a more local level. And with Courtney Bangert at UNC in particular, um, they've murdered Duke the last few years in recruiting. With the rise of NC State, the kind of players that they want. So, and Duke used to absolutely rule Maryland and Virginia corridors under Gail Guestin course, and that's long gone. So you'll need to figure out someone, like I said, who can get the best prospects in the state who are good fits for Duke, as well as expanding its, going back to its natural corridor, the Northeast, the, the DMV area, et cetera, and then being a natural, national scope. And then finally, my recommendation, the third assistant is to retain Wanisha Smith, in part because a smart coach always keeps one assistant for continuity. Someone who literally says, this is how things work. This is, you know, the day to day. These are, the, you know, this is how to use this facility. This, But more to the point, someone has continuity with the players who already has a relationship with the players. And Nish has, you know, Nish has the bonus of being um, an alum who played under two different coaches. And at the same time, she was only here Briefly, so it's not like she was so much connected to Grand Macaulay that there's like, a, oh, we want to get rid of all old vestiges. I think it's, I think it's an ideal situation for that. Rob, when we're talking about you, you mentioned recruiting earlier and just you know how we've kind of been beaten in the last few years. Um, you mentioned the DMV, which is you know an interesting. It's a very hotbed area here. I, I live here in DC, uh, and she's from here. She's from Northern Virginia. She grew up in in, in this environment. Do you think that holds an advantage? And also, 
do you maybe see her try to bring in someone uh, like maybe having the program reconciliate with Joy Cheek, a recruiter who is known for doing that while she kind of gets the lay of the land? Joy Cheek would be an ideal choice. I'm not sure that's going to happen for two reasons, or three reasons. Joy might have come if it was, if Gail Gatz's court's gotten a job, or like Lindsay Harding. I think that may have been an offer she couldn't refuse. Joy, uh, and actually I should say Joy Cheek Smith is pregnant. Seven, seven, eight months, and she, so that's going to kind of take her off the table a little bit, just in general. Also, her husband is um, an assistant football coach at Wofford, and is you know kind of settled in, and so there's some. There would be a lot of moving parts for her to come here, and for him to figure out what he was going to do. All of this is made uh, twice as difficult with the pandemic. Who knows what jobs are going to look like there, or jobs in general, of any kind? Hey, hey, Rob. I, I know you just mentioned um, the pandemic, and obviously, you know, there's going to be uh, probably a truncated season, even if there is some kind of season. Um, try to project for me, if you can, sort of what your expectations are for Carolos and over the next couple seasons. You know where. What's the track that you want the team to be on? Um, not just wins and losses, but recruiting and the such. Uh, what do you think are reasonable expectations for her? Because Duke isn't in a great place right now, you know, in terms of the quality of the roster. Well, in terms of the next season, you know, it's difficult to predict. This thing is just keep getting worse and worse. My suspicion is that they're going to um, adapt the football plan and just do a conference season only. And then hold the ACC tournament and the NCAA tournaments in empty buildings in a bubble situation. So that's what I think for this year. Now, as for this roster, the thing about it is that there are interesting pieces on it that have been uh, badly misused. For example, Neely Goodchild is a superb three-point shooter. But in the Macaulay offense, she wasn't really given a lot of space to get off her shot because Macaulay didn't use a lot of free-flowing movement to set screens. And someone like Goodchild is ideal to play in something more like an emotion offense um, where she's constantly getting screened and she can actually run around the floor and look for screens. Um, and the other thing is that under Macaulay, players got better but a lot of players who really needed a lot of coaching up didn't really get the, the development they needed uh and a great example of that is um onamaya akimodi james and part of her issue is that mentally she's not always focused every game but i feel that's a situation where that's someone who needs to be coached up someone who needs a little more discipline and structure and simple player development like go to one or two moves and like just get those moves down hard. And so I think for this season, the other thing about this coming into Duke right now, is that it's an ideal time coming to the ACC. Muffet just left Notre Dame and she had her worst season in years. And while they have recruits coming in, they're still rebuilding. You know, Carolina is just now starting to rebuild. 
And there are a lot of programs, you know, the, the dominant program right now is Louisville. And then there are very, very steady programs in um, Florida State, Syracuse, and NC State has really turned themselves around and becoming a very solid contender. It's not like this is 2006 where you had three teams go to the Final Four. It's not even 2010, 2013 where you had six, seven teams in the top 25. The ACC is not that strong right now. Everyone, and there's a lot of teams kind of bunched up in the middle. And uh, while Duke is, doesn't have fantastic talent and certainly will be hurting losing um, players, uh, uh, losing Liana Odom and Haley Gorecki, who are offensive anchors of the team for quite a while, there's there's raw material there that a clever coach can turn into something interesting. I think in that regard, it might be a little bit better than people think next year. Now, with regard to recruiting, how long it turns around, one should look no further than Maryland and Brenda Freeze back in the mid-2000s. It takes one good recruiting class to make your team relevant. It takes two good recruiting classes to make them a contender. And it takes three in a four-year period to make them um, championship material. Look at Gail Gaston course, her first recruiting class, basically is the one that brought him back into the late tournament. And then she had another one, one that uh, partially bolstered by transfers that got him in the final four. And then the one with Elena Beard that sort of gave them ACC dominance. And with Freeze, it was even more compressed. She had three classes in a row, and that gave him a national title. It can be done. And in basketball, uh, if you're a good enough recruiter and you're a good enough coach, um, things can turn around quickly. And that's not saying they will. Because Austin's personality, if you've seen her on television and if you've interviewed her, she's kind of grim. She's very serious. And I don't know what she's like in person. I don't know how she'll be with the players. I don't know how she is in terms of building relationships, building trust. These are all questions I don't know. And uh, not every friendly coach is necessarily builds great relationships. She doesn't have, like, the charisma of, say, Lena Beard. Lena Beard is, like, a dynamic, electric personality. If you spend any time around her, it's like you realize that this is a special person who, like, people want to be around and, like, hear what she has to say and do. And Tara is a lot more reserved. I don't know how that play out. I don't know how that play out on the recruiting trail. And so a lot, again, will depend on the recruits that she gets. So that's the big question mark. How things play out on the recruiting trail uh, in the next two years will determine the team's success over the next three, four years. More to the point, how they establish relationships not just with next class and a class after that, but like three, four, five years down the line. It's an enormous amount of work. And um, that's actually one of the things that Macaulay's staff did very, very well. She had more than one very good recruiter on her staff. And that was a tribute to establishing relationships well ahead of time, maintaining them, and then following through. And up until the investigation, 
even with a lot of the other negatives regarding college program, she was still pulling in top recruits year after year after year because of that preparation. Well, Rob, we want to thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us about the the new Duke women's head basketball coach, Kara Lawson. Um, we will check in with you in the future to see how things are going with that, because I, I think it's, yeah. a, it, you know, it, it's an exciting time um, for Duke women's basketball, uh, assuming there there is any Duke women's basketball, <laughs> which is we'll still see. very much up in the air. Yeah. But again, uh, thanks a lot for joining us, Rob. My pleasure. Take care. Uh, so we really uh, obviously appreciate Rob uh, providing us with his expertise, but you know us. We can't possibly leave without having our own thoughts on this topic, even though we are not nearly the experts that he is. Donald, I'll go to you first. Um, you know, Give me your thoughts on the hiring of Kara Lawson. I, I like it. It's Like I said, I was ecstatic about this hire because when we were talking just a few days ago, I, I feel like this is a trend, by the way. We we talk about something, and then three days later, it happens. It's it's, it's almost like we're the, we're the whispers of, of college basketball and college sports. But I digress. We, when we're talking about Kara Lawson, she's a household name. She, like you said, she played at Tennessee. She played in WNBA. She's a WNBA champion. She's been on ESPN. She's been on all these different places where she's providing her analysis. When it comes to women's basketball, when it comes to basketball in general, she is a household name. And when she steps into a, a living room for a player that a recruit, like they're going to listen to what she has to say. They're going to, and I really like that part of it because, and that's what I'm more, most excited about. She's going to be able to bring those hey, people this, in. This is sort of like hiring Jay Billis. I mean, let's let's yeah. let's be clear. She's the Jay Billis of the women's game, who who went and for one season was an assistant coach with the Boston Celtics. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I don't think there are Duke fans out there that would that would be upset if for some reason when Coach K stepped aside, we went, you know what, we're going to go with the biggest commentator name out there. That's what Kara Lawson was, right? Yeah, this is just like Jay Billis, you know, or someone like that. Because, again, every night on ESPN during college basketball, you would hear Jay Billis, you hear what he has to think. That's the same thing for Kara Lawson. And really over the past couple of years – We've got to see her, if, for me personally, I've gotten to see her locally because she was the color commentator for the Washington Wizards before she became an assistant coach for the Boston Celtics. So she's obviously taken what she's learned from the analytical side and applied it to coaching. Now, we, we've only had one truncated season with her as a coach. I, I get those reservations uh, that Rob brought up, but I think we're at a point now where we, we should see what happens. I think when it comes to recruiting, this is going to be an energizer because, again, when Kara Lawson steps into your living room and you're a 17-year-old you know, woman who is looking to try and figure out where she's going to play college basketball, you're going to listen to what she has to say. And I think as she goes forward, she she's smart enough to know where her downsides are, where her weaknesses are, and she's going to draw in people that I think are going to be they're ready to help her in those areas. So uh, I think it's a slam dunk hire for, for Duke. You know, Sam, you brought up last week that this was the first major visible hire that Kevin White has had to do. I think he did a great job with that. Uh, and I'm looking forward to seeing what she has to do or, or what she's going to do uh, over the next few years. You know, you mentioned the Boston Celtics. It's worth noting Brad Stevens has, has raved about her as an assistant coach. And, and this is someone who definitely has – a, uh, you know, a, a great future in the coaching profession. But Sam, let me get to that Kevin White thing, because that was uh, that was something that you talked about leading up to this hire, 
that you wanted to see what Kevin White would do. Uh, wh what do you think, you know, what do you think this means for, uh, for Kevin White as AD? I, I think it's a, I agree with Donald that I think it, it, it looks like a good hire. Duke wasn't going to get a perfect candidate. There is not a Duke alum, high profile women's basketball coach that was available to step right into this role. Right. Rob talked about Joy Cheek Smith potentially being someone that that Duke would be interested in, but she's about to have a kid. So it might be a hard time to 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 transition. That being said, I did want to come back and and talk about, you know, touch back on something that Rob mentioned, which is that he kind of sees this as being Kevin White handing a little bit of the reins over to Nina King, who is presumably, I guess, the AD in waiting, although that's not a rumor that I had that I had previously heard or or thought about but it it makes a lot of sense here nina king is hiring another relatively young uh coach to to take over this program arguably duke's third most important program behind men's basketball and and football and honestly the last time that a hire like this was made it women's basketball was probably the second most important program and you can see that the women's basketball team and the football team have gone in somewhat opposite directions since then coach cutcliffe obviously being hired soon after Joanne McCauley came to Duke and and Cutcliffe, I think we all agree, has been nothing short of a of a success. While McCauley's tenure was okay at the beginning and then and then trailed off a little bit. So this is a a big opportunity for Duke to reel in a big name head coach. And I'm I'm excited about what Kevin White and I guess what also Nina King did here. And I I, I believe it's the case that that Nina King has uh, or that within Kevin White's staff, different assistant ADs have oversight over different programs. That Nina King is the is the overseer or the the local AD, you might say, for the women's basketball team. So I think that this this makes sense as a great hire. I think it's also really important to note for Duke. I believe you guys can correct me if I'm wrong. I believe this is the first major coach that that Duke has ever hired uh, who is a person of color, and it would be. It would be remiss if we didn't mention that, I think, during the enormous national conversation that, that's going on right now, that Duke, as as much as I think Duke has been really good about, about bringing in people of color and, and, and a lot of diversity into the athletic department, especially for the players, they haven't done so in the coaching ranks as much. And that, that this is a, a big step for the university and, and is really cool to see, even if it's not the most important thing for, for the AD to be looking for when making a, a prominent hire like this one. They have been, I, I know there have been assistant coaches that we've obviously brought in uh, that are a color, but I, to my knowledge and, and all of you out there, please check us if we're, if we're incorrect. I do believe this is the first head coaching hire uh, that is of color. So not among, yeah, stuff. not among, definitely not among football, men's basketball and women's basketball, which, correct. which you could say are sort of the big three here. Correct. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, baseball, soccer, I mean, the major sports, um, I, I, I'll freely admit that I'm not aware of all the the Duke head coaches throughout history, but, but sort of the major team sports, the team sports that most people pay attention to. Yeah. There's, there's no one of color. So uh, Sam, I'm glad you pointed that out. It's really a really important thing. One other thing that, you know, we sort of hit on with Rob a little bit is the uncertainty about the season. And I want to transfer us from from this conversation just about women's basketball and the women's basketball head coach that we're all excited about, over to the reality of our COVID times, the coronavirus continues to, to spread. And uh, just in the past you know, few days, we have seen um, uh, both the Pac-12 and the Big Ten say that they are moving to conference games only. 
Um, their, their teams will not be traveling around a lot. Um, uh, they will be playing conference opponents only. They won't be playing non-conference opponents at all. Uh, there is a lot of speculation that the ACC, the SEC, and the Big 12 um, will be next. We'll probably do the same thing. Um, there are a myriad of questions that this leaves. And, and, and by the way, I don't want us to necessarily get into will there be a season or not. I mean, obviously, once you go from we're not playing a full season to we're playing a partial season to we're playing conference games only, the next step is we're not playing any games at all. I think everyone recognizes that's a possibility, but I don't really want to get into that because it's just it's further down the road. We'll see what happens. Um, but I do want to talk about the impact of only playing conference games. Um, you know, what, what does that mean for Notre Dame? Is Notre Dame a member of the ACC? What does it mean for BYU and other independents? Do they, is there no one for them to play? And, and, and then the other thing is, and Donald, I'll, I'll, I'll go to you and let you talk about this a little bit. There, there's part of this that sort of doesn't make any sense. I mean, Syracuse playing conference-only games means Syracuse is traveling a lot to the southern half of the United States and not playing any schools that are in their own home state. For Duke, only playing conference games means we don't play Elon and North Carolina Central who are teams that are like right there in our area, not a lot of travel, really easy to get to, easy to bring them to us or whatever. It, it almost feels like with conferences rushing to only play conference games, they're not really thinking about the logistics of what this actually means. Yeah, very. again, let me point out first that we discussed this thing on the very last episode and maybe two hours later, these all started again with the whispers, I'm telling you. Uh, but anyway, I, I, when it comes to this, there's some of this that does make sense. There's some of it that doesn't. Like you said, I mean, you're talking about Elon and, and NC Central and NC A&T and those type of schools. Some of the big time rivalry matchups are intra-conference teams. Clemson and South Carolina, they're 100 miles apart. They're not going to play. Florida, Florida State, they're not going to play. Georgia, Georgia Tech, not going to play. Like those sort of things are the ones that don't make sense. And I think there's going to be some pushback in those locales about, Hey, you're, you mean to tell me that Clemson can go to Boston college, but she, but they can't go to Columbia. I mean, th that part doesn't make sense. But when it comes to the grand scheme of everyone playing in conference, again, this is something that they should have started with. They should have said, look, we are just going to focus on this. And if we can add some of these other games, then, then that's fine. But this whole, like starting on September 1st, Labor Day weekend with, games that are basically friendlies exhibitions not necessarily in that sense but just two random teams playing each other doesn't make a lot of sense there's another one that has to be uh, thought about it's not necessarily in the power five but hawaii hawaii has to travel and and really right now if you go to hawaii you have to quarantine for 14 days does that matter if you're from hawaii does that matter if you're going between islands in hawaii you must quarantine for 14 days every time you step off an airplane in the Hawaiian Islands. There's no way that any college football team is going to do that. Furthermore, it's going to be very difficult to get Hawaii to play all of their games on the mainland. They're just not going to want to do that because Hawaii has fewer cases than just about anywhere else in the, in the country. So there's a lot of questions that still need to be answered about this, but I think the gist of it is everyone wants to stay close. I think this is the first step, but I don't think we're done. I think this is just the step that buys them some time to figure out how they can put together a schedule and if that schedule will really work out the way they think it will. I think that the that breaking the games down by like only allowing games by conference 
is not the most logical way to respond to the pandemic. It's obviously the most logical way to respond based on the existing power structure and contracts. But if the people in charge wanted to to make this make this happen in a limited way, you would break it down in two ways. First would be geographic. So Clemson and South Carolina should be able to play each other because if one campus is in good shape, the other one pro- is more likely to be in good shape than if Clemson is playing Syracuse because they're just in different parts of the country. And then same thing if South Carolina has a game scheduled against Missouri or or Texas A&M or LSU, just as far away, like not close to each other. West Virginia is in the Big 12. Remember that. West Virginia, right. <laughs> And, 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 and the way the pandemic is going in West Virginia has nothing to do with the way the pandemic is going in Oklahoma, most likely. The other way to break it down is, is by, by resource availability. So the reason that Duke can't play NC Central or Elon is that NC Central and Elon are less likely uh, because they're schools with, with, with less money and, and really a lot less money in the athletic department. They're a lot less likely to be able to guarantee that, that their student athletes are going to be safe to play and, and travel to games. So Duke can play North Carolina. They're down the street. If both schools are are testing a lot and, and healthy, Duke could play South Carolina. They're not that far away. I think what you what you could do here is think about breaking down the conferences and and thinking more geographically about who plays whom. Maryland and West Virginia are not that far away from each other. Who cares that they play in different conferences? Unfortunately, I don't think that that solution is going to manifest in the next two months because it requires a lot of um, it requires a lot of contracts to be broken and changed with the television providers, with all the different schools, with the conferences themselves, which are, which are entities in their own right. And it might just be too complicated for them to to figure all of that out, unless they break it down and say, "Look, none of these current plans are working. We have to to scrap." the plans we have and, and just go with something else because, hey, we think we can have football in a limited way. I'm still pessimistic that that they're going to be able to play in the fall, but I think if there is a way to do it, breaking it down by by geography and by resource availability so that any Power 5 school could play any other Power 5 school in its area would potentially help there being games. And, and I think that the reason they're doing it this way is because for the most part, conferences are the ones that have the TV contracts. Um, it's not individual school other than Notre Dame. It's not individual schools. It's conferences that have TV contracts and it's the conferences that need to make money off that TV. I, I, I want to point out as much as we, and I think I probably speak for all three of us, as much as we think it's probably not wise to be playing football, um, that, that it's just difficult to figure out all the health logistics of it right now. There is a economic reality for these athletic departments. And again, we talked about it just a few days ago on the podcast. Teams are already eliminating varsity sports left and right. If they don't play any football at all on TV this year, it will be an economic devastation for these colleges, for these athletic departments. So they're desperately trying to figure out how they can get in even a few games, just get a portion of that SEC, ACC, Big Ten television contract, because that's the biggest piece of the pie, uh, you know, in their athletic budget. If they can get some of it, then maybe they can survive while they try and ride out this this health storm. Um, So I think that's why they're trying to do it. Again, I don't know that it's the smartest thing to do health wise. Donald, tell me, what do you think? What are the health ramifications of all this? What's your big concern? My biggest concern is testing, and it's not necessarily the amount of testing. It's the amount of tests that are required to do it properly. 
It's, it's just a huge amount. Uh, we're seeing already in Major League Soccer that they're, you know, I mean, they have 26 teams, 20 players, and they're, you know, going through, you know, thousands of tests a day. Tests, mind you, that can't be offered to the general public because they're being used on players to make sure that they are safe enough to play a game. And even inside that bubble just this morning before we recorded, a game was canceled three minutes before it was supposed to start because two players had unconfirmed positive tests. Major League Soccer, point out, Major League Soccer. Major League Soccer, yes. Yeah. And so... Your team, right? It was your team. It, it was my team, <laughs> yeah. My team was one of those guys that was supposed to play, and, and then they weren't, which is why we recorded at this point this morning. But when it comes to that, the, the talk wasn't, oh, we have positive cases. From the league, the case was, hey, the process is working. Uh, you know, there are false positives and false negatives. These are all excuses. And if we're seeing that for Major League Soccer, imagine what we're going to see for college football when, as we've already seen, a third of UNC tested positive. The whole team, a third of the team tested positive for COVID. And it wasn't about false negatives and false positives. It's a reality. It, and that is what, if we do all these tests, thousands and thousands and thousands of tests just so kids can play football to satisfy the pockets of the conferences. And, you know, mind you, going back into the whole thing of like, you know, players aren't getting any of these, any of these checks, right? At least in the professional ranks, the guys are getting paid to take that risk. Here they're not. And to use up all these tests, especially in some of these locales that don't have enough testing as it is, that's going to be a major implication that I don't think college football is prepared to handle. So we're going to leave it there. Take a quick break, folks. But when we come back, was Zion Williamson really paid $400,000 before he attended Duke University? I'll give you the answer. We're back, and as we just teased a moment ago, time to talk about the latest in the Zion Williamson insanity lawsuit craziness. So Gina Ford, the woman who is suing Zion Williamson, uh, her lawyers uh, produced a filing where they said they had evidence, they had proof that Zion Williamson was paid $400,000 by a marketing company. And they submitted this evidence in a absolutely breathless uh, filing with the court as further proof that Zion was not eligible when he was at Duke. And so Gina Ford's contract with him was valid because he wasn't a student athlete when he signed it. And then people looked at the evidence and it is, it's, it's literally a joke. It's uh, Donald. Can we say, Donald, can we say Donald yeah. or uh, can we say Jason that some people looked at the evidence? Some people just read the Twitter headlines. And so yeah. there's a lot more overreacting going on than there should be. So I want to get into that. I want to get into the absurd, irresponsible way that a lot of people have handled this news. But first, I'm going to get to Donald. Donald, tell me what the evidence looked like and what did people, if people actually looked at it, what would they have seen? I wish, I know you two can see my face. I wish all of you out there could see my face right now. This right here is is just dumb. This is so stupid. Uh Look, hey, you're, Donald, you're, you're a lawyer. This is bad a, lawyering, right? This is unconscionably this, bad lawyering. Look, I'm going to tell you, I'm just going to give it to you straight. I don't know 
and I've been a lawyer for over 13 years. I don't know what lawyer would ever risk his license, his or her career, by filing what they filed. The fact that they did, if I'm Zion's attorneys, I'm filing immediately to sanction those attorneys, declare the case, throw it out, and push for Ford to have to pay for attorney's fees for wasting everyone's time. They filed fraudulent documents. They filed photoshopped documents. They filed something that was purported to be his driver's license. And you're thinking, okay, how can a driver's license be doctored? Well, his height on there was 284. His weight was six foot six. He also, the, the, the driver's license said he lived in Darlington, South Carolina. Darlington, South Carolina, most of you guys know that. If you're a NASCAR fan, you know that that's home of Darlington Motor Speedway. Except that he lived in Spartanburg, South Carolina, which is over 200 miles away. That was filed in a court of law under penalty of perjury. And then on top of that, they filed this other document that says, hey, Wait, I- Donald, Donald, is that mm-hmm. like, so this is, this is like me taking the fake ID that I never had and like giving it to a, to an official of the court, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's that would be a bad it. thing. Yes. Yeah. You shouldn't do that. You, you don't, just, don't do that. Don't do that, America. Um, but there's also the, the, the agreement, I say that with air quotes, uh, that has a, you know, the same photoshopped signature from the driver's license is the photoshopped signature on this document. Mind you, the guy who- It's a bad said, Photoshop. Like it's got, it's pixelated. It's, it's pixelated. Doesn't look, it doesn't look it's, anywhere. Oh. Also, real quick out there, I don't know if you guys have seen Zion's signature. It's not his actual signature. So there's that part too. But anyway- when it comes to that document, the guy who they claim to have had that he had an agreement with is a guy who's wrapped up in another legal suit with Luka Doncic about yeah. fraud. Yeah, so <laughs> let, let, let me explain this so people understand it, because there haven't been enough articles that have explained this accurately. So here's what happened. There's a guy out there, uh, a con man. And what he does is he he doctors up fake licenses, fake letters, things like that, that say that he represents various famous athletes. He's done it with Luka Doncic, and now he's done it with Zion Williamson. And then he contacts an investor and he says, hey, my firm has an arrangement, has a deal with Luka Doncic and Zion Williamson. Why don't you invest in me, invest in my company, and then you'll get a piece of this marketing deal with Zion Williamson. So he wasn't trying to defraud Zion. He was trying to defraud someone else. What happened was Gina Ford's lawyers got a hold of these fake documents that this guy had used to defraud someone else. And they said, oh, look, this is proof that Zion signed a, a deal with someone else. So this guy was committing a fraud on, on investors. And then Gina Ford's lawyers got a piece of this, got a hold of this. And they said, here, this is proof that Zion Williamson signed a deal with someone else. Uh, it's, it's such bad. It, like for them not to do any vetting at all. Of the, they, have sent, they got these documents and they just said, let's submit them. Uh, as opposed to them actually looking into whether or not the documents were real. It's just, it's unconscionably bad. But so Sam, I'm going to go to you. This is something that you had started us talking about. The, the, the pathetic thing, the terrible thing is how the media and how everyone is only paying attention to this, this allegation as opposed to paying attention to the fact that the allegation is already demonstrably a hundred percent false, Right. I'm already upset that we've spent this much time talking about it because we're just giving 
credence to the whole story when it's clearly well, no, all just no. a fraud. Actually, and, but, but but what we're doing is we're explaining to people when you see the headline, when yes. you see the irresponsible people who say Zion signed that $400,000 contract, you can go, no, he didn't. It, it was clearly it, it, we already know that, fraud. though. We already know we, that. Right. People so, only read Twitter headlines. They only read the prob- newspaper right. headlines. The problem is the media has not treated it that way. To 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 quote one of the best movies, I think, of uh, not in my lifetime, because I think it came out well before I was born. But uh, if this is the case, Your Honor, then isn't this an indictment? indictment of the entire american system and we will not stand for it gentlemen and let's all just walk out the room uh as otter did with with all of his fraternity brothers in animal house because the whole thing is a farce so yes educate your friends because i know that no non-duke fans are are listening to the show why would you uh we all live in our in our own partisan little worlds but we welcome you anyway we look. We'd love to have you. And sorry if we if we make fun of your program. Those who are fans of Kentucky, North Carolina, Maryland, NC State, Syracuse, I, whoever. But uh, we we know the whole thing is fake. And yes, the, the the real bummer about this is that there are commentators out there who are talking about it like it's real. So uh, as you're as you're reading more about this, just keep in mind that the whole thing is a sham and to treat it as such. And really, I think the the main point is, and I know Jason, this you're in the media, so I'll toss you to a second. But really, what this really boils down to is Gina Ford is playing this for the court of public opinion. Now she's not trying this case in court; she's, she's trying, trying in the, the court of public opinion because she, yeah, because she knows, which we all know, that all she has to do is put it out there, and people take it as. Oh, she filed in court. It must be true. It's never been the case in the history of this thing. That's why we have innocent until proven guilty. But it doesn't matter in the court of public opinion because people make up their minds based on what they see and how they are how it's given to them. Don't forget, this is the same Gina Ford marketing professional who spelled the word marketing wrong on her LinkedIn profile, as we talked about, I think, like a month ago when I looked it up. So still still the same dishonest person. Yeah. So you had this court of public opinion and she's trying it because she knows all people are going to see is duke zion four hundred thousand dollars and they're going to disregard the rest do you know how many people probably saw the the actual filings when it comes to you know me i will read some stupid filings because it's interesting to me because i'm an attorney but there's some people who just don't dive into that because they think it's boring but the problem is that's where the details are and if you file if you checked out this filing and you saw that doctored driver's license and you thought everything else was real i i don't know what to tell you and and that honestly is leading to the point that the media is basically just taking the headlines and making it juicy because that's what's sexy it's sexy to talk about allegations at duke it's not sexy to talk about a doctored driver's license that renders basically this whole case irrelevant look the sad thing the unfortunate thing the irresponsible thing, and as a member of the media, I, I have no problem saying that the coverage of this is irresponsible. I'm going to read you the headline on ESPN. ESPN's headline says, Zion Williamson's stepfather took $400,000 payment, court filing alleges. That's the headline. Here's the problem. Once you dig into the article around paragraph four, five, six, seven, something like that, it makes it clear that a lot of the allegations in this are part of a fraud investigation and that and that basically, once you read the article, you understand that, that it's probably complete and utter BS, that there was no $400,000 payment. There was no agreement with any marketing firm by Zion's father or anything, stepfather or anything like that. 
But the headline, the main thing that shows up on your Twitter feed, the main thing that shows up on ESPN is that Zion Williamson's stepfather took a $400,000 payment. It's, it's bad journalism, really bad journalism. And, and I'll tell you, so I was, I was watching ESPN the other day and Jay Williams was among the folks commenting on this on first take or one of those shows. I forget. It was first take. And, I was watching. Yeah. It. Yeah. And, and I think Jay did a terrible job of, of refuting it. You've got to, you've got to come out and say, why are we even talking about this thing? Because it is patently untrue. Not we think it might not be true or we're still looking into it or it's just an allegation. It is clearly false. It is clearly fraud. These are clearly forged documents, poorly forged documents. I mean, like McLovin's driver's license was a better driver's license. I, than- I, I think I think we saw a, a McLovin-Zion Williamson matchup driver's yeah. license circulating on Twitter the other day. So excellent reference. One Thank name. you so much. <laughs> uh, movie critic Jason Evans over here with uh with 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 big movie references. Super Sorry. bad. Super That's bad right. reference. McLovin's driver's license was better than Zion's driver's license. There's no question about that. So why and and if the media had handled it properly, we wouldn't be spending 15 minutes of our podcast talking about it. I will say I will say Jason, it like I said, it's it's it feels sexy for these people to talk about Duke in that way. I'll give you a great example. There is this guy who is in in prison in Virginia, and his claim to fame is that he literally sues everyone in the entire nation who was of any political celebratorial clout for dumb stuff. He once sued Coach K for $65 million because his toilet seat was cold, and he didn't get uh, you know, so, toilet paper for his toilet seat to be warm. So he sued Coach K for $65 million. What came out? An article that says, man sues Coach K for $65 million. And people were just like, oh, well, Coach K probably did it. No, Coach K has nothing to do with that man's toilet seat, but that's that wasn't the headline. And there, and I know as someone who writes in, in, in the blogging sphere, and I know about a little bit of the media, there are some times where you have to separate the headline from the article because there are two different people who write that. But the problem is the person who writes the headline is writing it to get clicks. They're writing it because they know if you see something juicy, you're going to click on the article. Or in this America, in this world right now with social media and the re- and the you know rush to be first, people just retweet the headline. They don't actually read what's in the article. They just want to be able to comment on what they've seen in that, you know, 200, uh, 200 character tweet. So I, I say that to say everyone just needs to chill out, actually read some of this stuff. And you may find things like doctor driver's licenses that will really make you reconsider whether or not you really should be invested in this in the first place. Oh, it's all so sad, but uh, I'm glad we have covered it, and I'm glad at least the folks who listen to our podcast will understand that this is complete and utter BS. I can't so, wait. For, I can't wait for Zion in that first game in the bubble to just dunk the life off of a of, off of a rim and basically bring down an entire banquet room at the Dizzy Wild World of Sports, and then just walk off the court and Blake. Okay, that's 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 my reaction to this. To he this looks. Lawsuit. He looks ready to collect rims and faces. Yes. I love it. Oh, God, can the NBA come back soon? Please, 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 please. So that's going to do it for us here on episode 217 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. Welcome to the Duke family, Kara Lawson, 
Rob C., thanks for joining us here on the podcast, man, to tell us all about it. Donald and Sam, thanks for joining me to talk about the other stuff we talked about, especially the insanity that was Zion Williamson and that lawsuit. That thing cannot go away soon enough. Anyway, I am Jason Evans. This is another episode of the DBR Podcast. We hope all of you out there are wearing masks and staying safe. We will see you very, very soon. Duke Band, play us home.